0: Chapter twenty seven of The Secret Service by Albert Richardson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Casper. Chapter twenty seven It is held that valor is the chiefest virtue, and most dignifies the haver. If it be, the man I speak of cannot in the world be singly counterpoised. Coriolanus during the month of March, Major-General Edwin V. Sumner was in Washington, apparently in vigorous health. He had just been appointed to the command of the Department of the Missouri. One Saturday evening, having received his final orders, he was about leaving for his home in Syracuse, New York, where he designed spending a few days before starting for St. Louis. I went into his room to bid him adieu allusion was made to the allegations of speculation against general curtis his predecessor in the west i trust said he they are untrue no general has a right to make one dollar out of his official position beyond the salary which his government pays him he talked somewhat in detail of the future remarking for the present i shall remain in st louis but whenever there is a prospect of meeting the enemy i shall take the field and lead my troops in person some men can fight battles over a telegraph wire but you know i have no talent in that direction with his friendly grasp of the hand and his kindly smile he started for home it proved to him home indeed a week later the country was startled by intelligence of his sudden death he who for forty-eight years had braved the hardships of campaigning and the perils of battle until he seemed to have a charmed life was abruptly cut down by disease under his own roof surrounded by those he loved the breast that trampling death could spare his noiseless shafts assail for almost half a century sumner had belonged to the army of the united states but he steadfastly refused to be put on the retired list entering the service from civil life he was free from professional traditions and narrowness. Senator Wade once asked him, How long were you at the military academy? He replied, I was never there in my life. The bluff Ohioan sprang up and shook him fervidly by the hand, exclaiming, Thank God for one general of the regular army who was never at West Point. During the early Kansas Troubles, Sumner, then a colonel, was stationed in the territory with his regiment of dragoons. Unscrupulous as were the administrations of Pierce and Buchanan, in their efforts to force slavery upon Kansas, embittered as were the people against the troops, generally mere tools of Missouri ruffians, their feelings toward Sumner were kindly and grateful they knew he was a just man who would not willingly harass or oppress them and who sympathized with them in their fiery trial from the outbreak of the slaveholders rebellion his name was one of the brightest in that noble but unfortunate army which illustrated northern discipline and valor on so many bloody fields but had never yet gathered the fruits of victory he was always in the deadliest of the fighting HE HAD THE TRUE SOLDIERLY TEMPERAMENT. HE SNUFFED THE BATTLE AFAR OFF. HE FELT THE RAPTURE OF THE STRIFE, AND WENT INTO IT WITH BOYISH ENTHUSIASM. IN EXPOSING HIMSELF HE WAS IMPRUDENCE PERSONIFIED. IT WAS THE CHRONIC WONDER OF HIS FRIENDS THAT HE EVER CAME OUT OF BATTLE ALIVE. AT LAST THEY BEGAN TO BELIEVE WITH HIM THAT HE WAS INVINCIBLE. HE WOULD RECEIVE BULLETS IN HIS HAT, coat, boots, saddle, horse, and sometimes have his person scratched, but without serious injury. His soldiers related with great relish that in the Mexican War, a ball which struck him square in the forehead, fell flattened to the ground without breaking the skin, as the bullet glances from the forehead of the buffalo. This anecdote won for him the sobriquet of old buffalo." At Fair Oaks his troops were trembling under a pitiless storm of bullets, when he galloped up and down the advance line, more exposed than any private in the ranks. "'What regiment is this?' he asked. "'The 15th Massachusetts,' replied a hundred voices. "'I, too, am from Massachusetts. Three cheers for our old Bay State.' and swinging his hat the general led off and every soldier joined in three thundering cheers the enemy looked on in wonder at the strange episode but was driven back by the fierce charge which followed this was no unusual scene whenever the guns began to pound his mild eye would flash with fire he would remove his artificial teeth which became troublesome during the excitement of battle and place them carefully in his pocket, raise his spectacles from his eyes, and rest them upon his forehead, that he might clearly see objects at a distance, give his orders to subordinates, and then gallop headlong into the thick of the fight. Hundreds of soldiers were familiar with the erect form, the snowy streaming hair, and the frank face of that wonderful old man, who, on the perilous edge of battle, while they were falling like grass before the mower would dash through the fire and smoke shouting steady men steady don't be excited when you have been soldiers as long as i you will learn that this is nothing stand firm and do your duty never seeking a dramatic effect he sometimes displayed a quiet heroism worthy of history's brightest pages once quite unconsciously reproducing a historic scene he repeated almost word for word the address of the great frederick to his officers before the battle of leuthen it was on the bloody field of fair oaks at the end of the second day he commanded the forces which had crossed the swollen stream but before the other troops came up the bridges were swept away the army was then cut in twain and sumner with his three shattered corps was left to the mercy of the enemy's entire force on that sunday night after making his dispositions to receive an attack he sent for general sedgwick his special friend and a most trusty soldier sedgwick you perceive the situation the enemy will doubtless open upon us at daylight reinforcements are impossible he can overwhelm and destroy us. But the country cannot afford to have us defeated. There is just one thing for us to do: we must stand here and die like men. Impress it upon your officers that we must do this to the last man-to the last man. We may not meet again. Good-bye, Sedgwick The two grim soldiers shook hands and parted. Morning came, but the enemy, failing to discover our perilous condition, did not renew the attack. New bridges were built, and the sacrifice was averted. But Sumner was the man to carry out his resolution to the letter. Afterward he retained possession of a house on our old line of battle, and his headquarter tents were brought forward and pitched. They were within range of a rebel battery, which awoke the general and his staff every morning by dropping shot and shell all about them for two or three hours. Sumner implored permission to capture or drive away the hostile battery, but was refused on the ground that it might bring on a general engagement. He chafed and stormed. It is the most disgraceful thing of my life, he said, that this should be permitted. But McClellan was inexorable. Sumner was directed to remove his headquarters to a safer position. He persisted in remaining for fourteen days, and at last only withdrew upon a second peremptory order. The experience of that fortnight exhibited the ever-recurring miracle of war, that so much iron and lead may fly about men's ears without harming them. During the whole bombardment, only two persons were injured, a surgeon was slightly wounded in the head by a piece of shell which flew into his tent and a private while lying behind a log for protection was instantly killed by a shot which tore a splinter from the wood fracturing his skull but not another man received even a scratch after Antietam, McClellan's ever-swift apologists asserted that his corps commanders all protested against renewing the attack upon the second morning. I asked General Sumner if it were true. He replied with emphasis, "'No, sir. My advice was not asked, and I did not volunteer it. But I was certainly in favour of renewing the attack. Much as my troops had suffered, they were good for another day's fighting,' especially when the enemy had that river in his rear, and a defeat would have ruined him forever. At Fredericksburg, by express order of Burnside, Sumner did not cross the river during the fighting. The precaution saved his life. Had he ridden out on that fiery front, he had never returned to tell what he saw. But he chafed sadly under the restriction— as the sun went down on that day of glorious but fruitless endeavor he paced to and fro in front of the lacy house with one arm thrown around the neck of his son his face haggard with sorrow and anxiety and his eyes straining eagerly for the arrival of each successive messenger he was a man of high but patriotic ambition once, hearing General Howard remark that he did not aspire to the command of a corps, he exclaimed, "'General, you surprise me. I would command the world if I could.' He was called arbitrary, but had great love for his soldiers, especially for old companions in arms. A New York colonel told me a laughable story of applying to him for a ten-day's furlough when the rule against them was imperative.' Sumner peremptorily refused it, but the officer sat down beside him and began to talk about the peninsular campaign, the battles in which he had done his duty, immediately under Sumner's eye, and it was not many minutes before the general granted his petition. "'If he had only waited,' said the narrator, "'until I recalled to his memory some scenes at Antietam, I am sure he would have given me twenty days instead of ten. His intercourse with women and children was characterized by peculiar chivalry and gentleness. He revived the old ideal of the soldier, terrible in battle but with an open and generous heart. To his youngest son, a captain upon his staff, he was bound by an unusual affection. Sammy was his constant companion. In private he leaned upon him, caressed him, and consulted him about the most trivial matters— it was a touching bond which united the gray, war-worn veteran to the child of his old age. We have had greater captains than Sumner, but no better soldiers, no braver patriots. The words which trembled upon his dying lips, May God bless my country, the United States of America, were the keynote to his life. Green be the turf above him. Louisville, Kentucky, april fifth eighteen sixty three.--For the last week I have been travelling through the States of the Northwest. The tone of the people on the war was never better. Now that the question has become simply one of endurance, their Northern blood tells.--"This is hard pounding, gentlemen," said Wellington at Waterloo, "but we will see who can pound the longer so in spite of the copperheads merely the dust and chaff on god's thrashing floor the overwhelming sentiment of the people is to fight it out to the last man and the last dollar you have been wont to say the west can be depended on for the war she will never give up her great outlet the mississippi but the inference that her loyalty is based upon a material consideration is untrue and unjust THE WEST HAS POURED OUT ITS BEST BLOOD, NOT ON ANY PETTY QUESTION OF NAVIGATION, OR OF TRADE, BUT UPON THE WEIGHTIER ISSUES OF FREEDOM AND NATIONALITY. THE NEW YORKER, OR PENNSYLVANIAN, MAY BELIEVE IN THE GREATNESS OF THE COUNTRY. THE KANSAN, OR MINNESOTIAN, WHO HAS GONE ONE OR TWO THOUSAND MILES TO ESTABLISH HIS prairie HOME, WALKS BY SIGHT AND NOT BY FAITH to him the great republic of the future is no rhetorical flourish or flight of fancy but a living verity his instinct of nationality is the very strongest his belief the profoundest may he never need emerson's pungent criticism the american eagle is good protect it cherish it but beware of the american peacock have you heard Prentice's last, upon the bursting of the rebel bubble that cotton is king? He says, they went in for cotton, and they got worsted. Murfreesboro, Tennessee, April 10th A visit to Rosecrans's army. I rode yesterday over the historical battleground of Stone River, among rifle-pits and breastworks, great oaks with scarred trunks and tops and branches torn off, and smooth fields thickly planted with graves. It is interesting to hear from the soldiers reminiscences of the battle. Rosecrans may not be strong in planning a campaign, but the thundering guns rouse him to the exhibition of a higher military genius than any other general in our service has yet displayed the grand anger of battle makes him see at a glance the needs of the occasion and stimulates those quick intuitions which enable great captains at the supreme moment to wrest victory from the very grasp of defeat peculiarly applicable to him is addison's description of marlborough in peaceful thought the field of death surveyed to fainting squadrons sent the timely aid INSPIRED REPULSED BATTALIONS TO ENGAGE, AND TAUGHT THE DOUBTFUL BATTLE WHERE TO RAGE. DURING THE RECENT GREAT CONFLICT WHICH BEGAN WITH DISASTER THAT WOULD HAVE CAUSED ORDINARY GENERALS TO RETREAT, HE SEEMED OMNIPRESENT. A DEVOUT CATHOLIC, HE PERFORMED BEFORE ENTERING THE BATTLE THE SOLEMN rites OF HIS CHURCH, a profound believer in destiny, he appeared like a man who sought for death. A few feet from him, a solid shot took off the head of Garash, his loved and trusted chief of staff. "'Brave men must die,' he said, and plunged into the battle again. He had a word for all. Of an Ohio regiment lying upon the ground, he asked, "'Boys, do you see that strip of woods?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Well, in about five minutes the rebels will pour out of it and come right toward you. Lie still until you can easily see the buttons on their coats, then drive them back. Do you understand?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Well, it's just as easy as rolling off a log, isn't it?' They laughingly assented, and Old Rosie, as the soldiers call him, rode along the line to encourage some other corps this is an army of veterans every regiment has been in battle and some have marched three thousand miles during their checkered campaigning their garments are old and soiled but their guns are bright and glistening and on review their evolutions are clockwork they are splendidly disciplined of unequalled enthusiasm full of faith in their general and in themselves rosecrans is an erect solid man of one hundred and seventy five pounds weight whose forty three years sit lightly on his face and frame he has a clear mild blue eye which lights and flashes under excitement an intensified roman nose high cheek bones florid complexion mouth and chin hidden under dark brown beard hair faintly tinged with silver and growing thin on the edges of the high full but not broad forehead in conversation a winning mirthful smile illumines his face as hamlet would take the ghost's word for a thousand pounds so you would trust that countenance in a stranger as indicating fidelity reserved power an overflowing humor and imperious will memphis tennessee April twentieth, Riding near the Elmwood Cemetery yesterday, I witnessed a curious feature of Southern life. It was a Negro funeral, the cortege a third of a mile in length, just entering the City of the Dead. The carriages were filled with Negro families, and, almost without exception, they were driven by white men. If such a picture were exhibited in Boston would those who clangor in our ears about negro equality ever permit us to hear the last of it? end of section twenty seven.